automation is changing the labor market. To automate a task, someone needs to put in the work to describe the task correctly to a computer. For some tasks, the reward for automating a task is tremendous. For example, putting together mobile phones. In China, companies like Foxconn are investing time and money into programming the instructions for how to assemble your phone. Robots execute these instructions. Foxconn spends millions of dollars deploying these robots, but it's a worthwhile expense. Once Foxconn pays off the capital investment in those robots, they have a tireless workforce that can build phones all day long. Humans require training, rest, and psychological considerations. And with robots, the error rate is lower. Your smartphone runs your life, and you do not want the liability of human imperfection involved in constructing that smartphone. And furthermore, do we really want humans doing the manual labor of building smartphones as a society? Probably not if we can get robots to do it. As we race towards an automated future, the manual tasks that get automated first depend on their economic value. The manual labor costs of smartphone construction is a massive expense for corporations. This is also true for truck driving and food service and package delivery. The savings that will be reaped from automating these tasks are tremendous, regardless of how we automate them. There are two ways of building automated systems, rule-based systems and machine learning. With rule-based systems, we can describe to the computer exactly what we want it to do like following a recipe. With machine learning, we can train the computer by giving it examples and let the computer derive its own understanding for how to automate a task. Both approaches to automation, both machine learning and rule-based systems, have their difficulties. A rule-based approach requires us to enumerate every single detail to the machine, like describing a recipe word for word. This might work well in a highly controlled environment like a manufacturing facility, but rule-based systems don't work well in the real world, where there are so many unexpected events like snowstorms. You hear about the difficulty of teaching a self-driving car to drive through a snowstorm, uh, even though it's an unexpected edge case event. It's pretty hard to describe that with a system of rules, so it might be better to describe that kind of environment through machine learning, through examples. As we reported in a previous episode about how to build self-driving cars, engineers still don't quite know what the right mix of rule-based systems and machine learning techniques are for autonomous vehicles. It stands to reason that is also true for other autonomous systems. But we still continue to pour money into solving this problem because the investment is worth figuring out how to train the machine. The routine tasks of our world will be automated, given enough time. How soon something will be automated depends on how expensive that task is when performed by a human, and how hard it is to design an artificial narrow intelligence to perform that task instead of a human. Manual software testing is another type of work that is being automated today. If I'm building a mobile app to play podcast episodes, for example and I write code that makes a change to the user interface, I want to have manual quality assurance testers run through the tests that I describe to them. I want them to be able to make sure that my change did not break anything. QA tests describe high-level application functionality. Can the user register and log in? Can the user press the play button and listen to a podcast episode on my app? Unit tests are not good enough because unit tests only verify the underlying logic and the application state from the point of view of the computer itself. So for something like UI, you actually are probably going to need some manual tests because there's such a wide surface area. Manual QA tests ensure that the quality of the user experience was not impacted. And with so many different device types and operating systems and browsers, I need my QA test to be executed in all of the different target QA environments. And this requires lots of manual testers. If you can imagine the scope of all these different kinds of devices, mobile devices, especially in the Android world, and all the different browsers that you could run, and the different operating systems, the different types of Android, for example, there's so many different configurations. And if I want manual testing for every deployment I push, 
that manual testing is going to get really expensive because not only do I need tons of manual testers for every change to my user interface, but I want to test that on every deployment. Rainforest QA is a platform for QA testing that turns manual testing into automated testing. The manual test procedures are recorded, processed by computer vision, and turned into automated tests. Rainforest QA hires human workers from Amazon Mechanical Turk to execute the well-defined manual tests, and the recorded manual procedure is used to train the machines that can execute the same task in the future. Russell Smith is the CTO and co-founder of Rainforest QA, and he joins the show to explain how Rainforest QA works, the engineering infrastructure, the process of recruiting workers from Mechanical Turk, and the machine learning system for taking manual tasks and automating them. I felt like this was a very important episode and an important topic to cover because this is how we're going to train machines to do a lot of the work that we would rather not have humans doing. We will have a human doing the work while we record the human doing the work, and then we will use those recordings to train machine learning algorithms. QA testing is a very well-formed, well-defined task that is a perfect example for how this is going to work with more and more tasks in the future. So I really enjoyed talking to Russell, and I think you'll like this episode too. Thanks for listening. Dice helps you accelerate your tech career. Whether you're actively looking for a job or you need insights to grow in your current role, Dice has the resources that you need. Dice's mobile app is the fastest and easiest way to get ahead. Search thousands of tech jobs, from software engineering to UI to UX to product management. Discover your worth with Dice's salary predictor based on your unique skill set. Uncover new opportunities with Dice's new career pathing tool, which can give you insights about the best types of roles to transition to and the skills that you'll need to get there. Manage your tech career and download the Dice Careers app on Android or iOS today. You can check out dice.com slash sedaily and support Software Engineering Daily. That way you can find out more about Dice and their products and their services by going to dice.com slash sedaily. Thanks to Dice for being a continued sponsor, and let's get back to this episode. Russell Smith is the CTO of Rainforest QA. Russ, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because your company is such an interesting spin on the idea of QA testing, and it gets really, really interesting. So, you know, for people who are not necessarily interested in quality assurance, I can guarantee this is a fascinating topic. So we've done a bunch of shows on quality assurance testing. So listeners do know the basics, and quality assurance itself is is complex and interesting. What are the common problems that occur, occur in the QA testing process at a software company? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. So, like, apart from, well, there's... There's many, but one of the common ones, which is one of the reasons Fred and I started this company, is, well, the belief that everybody's trying to move faster and they're trying to ship software more and more often. And so the cycle for you to be able to get feedback, like on your assurance, how much, uh, how assured you are to this is, this being a good release is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so with companies now aiming to ship like 10 plus times a day or maybe low hundreds of times per day, doing things the old way generally is starting to break and so the common ways of doing um, QA in the last sort of 20 years has been mostly manual so you spin up a team of people whether they're in-house or or not in-house and you have them go through a list of scenarios and test that your software works correctly and so the more common thing in the last sort of maybe 10 plus years is like starting to automate things and so that's like the classic one that's winning at the moment is Selenium at least for the web-based stuff. And so you'll end up hiring engineers to write Selenium. But even with that, allowing you to move a little faster, there's still like a, a heap of problems. But the short version is that moving faster causes everything to like break and stress and uh, show its problems, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. when we started Rainforest, the, the whole aim was to 
make something that gave you the best of both worlds. So the speed of automation, but the ease of use and the nuance of humans. Right. So explain what Rainforest QA does. So Rainforest QA is a platform for doing testing. You write your tests in plain English rather than using code, and then you can have them executed by a crowd of 60,000 humans any time of the day. And normally people are triggering this via CI or CD builds, and we return the results back to the customers in the sort of 20 to 30 minute range. So comparable to like a large automation suite. And the kind of cool thing where we're going is automating away some of that human work so that we can leverage the humans in our crowd for more nuanced stuff. So like exploratory testing instead of just regression testing. But high level, we're aiming to give you the services you need as a company to build out the things you want to do for quality. So the first service we launched was uh, regression testing. And then the second is exploratory testing. And then eventually we'll end up going into more more areas of uh, quality assurance and general quality. So ending up hopefully being something like AWS for QA. That makes sense. Got it. Yeah, so let's say I make a... Let's say I've got a mobile app for playing podcasts, and that's all my app does. It just plays podcasts, and I make a change to the back end, and I've got mobile apps on Windows and iOS and Android, and I want to know if there was a regression on that application. So let's say I'm using the regression testing platform for Rainforest QA. How would how would the my interaction with Rainforest QA go if I want to check whether there was a regression based on a, a change to my API? Cool. Yeah, that's a great question. So like what you'd end up doing is presuming you'd been with us for a little while, you'd have uh, built out some tests in, into your suite. What would happen is you'd generally put this as part of your build process. And so when you push your code and it goes uh, to your CI service, so Circle CI or Jenkins or whatever, one of the steps one of your engineers would add would be a call out to Rainforest QA. And so much like if you're doing RSpec or JUnit or something that returns results like that, we do the same. So it calls our server, tells us there's a build ready, tells us where to get the build, installs it on all the devices that you need, and then starts sending humans. We then collate the results and give them back to you. And so we do that really, really fast because the humans we have, and this is one of the cool things, is all of them are managed by algorithms. So there's no layers of humans managing humans managing humans. It's basically a flat 60,000 people managed by software. And so this allows us to give you the right people and the right devices at like the right time, almost instantly when you need them. And so generally people integrate into CICD process. There are other options. So if you want to do a scheduled run, maybe against production, classic use case would be, hey, check that credit card payments go through. We can give our testers real credit cards that we control and then uh, have them do payments through your system and check any time of the day. So we find large e-commerce customers doing this every few hours just to like tick that box that their payment system still works. Yeah, and then you can also trigger it manually in the interface if you really wish to. And that's normally a good starting point. You just go in and press a button, and then we start executing for you. What's happening on the Turks' side? What are they getting? How do they validate my new code? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, like, it's pretty simple concept when you break down, break it down, at least for the regression testing side of things. So the customer will come up with a set of tests or we'll help them with professional services to come up with tests. And they're they're formatted into an action, so asking the tester to do something and then asking a question about what they do. And so with this, you build up flows through your app. So maybe with your podcast one, you'd be like, hey, sign in and uh, favorite two two podcasts and then uh, log out and log back in and check they're still favorited or play one and then go back and then see if it starts in the same place when you come back. The point is you can go through various different flows that your users would do and then get results that those flows work really, really fast. Mm -hmm. Right. So they do the manual testing of my application. And then over time, 
if I understand correctly, the Turks actually teach machine learning algorithms to do the QA testing. Sure. So this is something that we're going to be launching. It's internally in use, but externally not. So something we've been working on for about a year, maybe a little longer behind the scenes. And so short version is we can take the information we learn about what the testers are doing and look at your application, like actually physically look at it as in the interface, not the actual code and work out what we think is going on. And so we've been working towards a high level of automation using um, is AI and ML combination to to help us drive a tester. You can think of it basically as a an AI-powered tester, automated tester uh, that we're doing. And so instead of doing this with Selenium and basically driving the interface as a robot would see it, we're driving it as a human would see it. And so that means some of the nuanced stuff that generally breaks with automation, say a classic example would be Selenium being able to click on something that can't be seen. We don't suffer from things like that because it still behaves like a human would do. Like it, it can only click on stuff it can see. And so short version, we're actually getting pretty far with that. So we're probably going to launch at least to some alpha and beta users of existing customers like sometime early next year for this, which is really exciting for me. And what tools can you take off the shelf to do that? Is that that seems like a computer vision so, problem? Because if you want to treat it like a, like a human, then you just you have to view it like yeah. with computer vision. You're correct. And so, like the short version is not that much. There's a, a paper that we've been using some of the work from called Visual QA, which is actually nothing to do with QA. That's proving pretty useful, but we're having to retrain it with totally different data and also modify it. But short version, we have a team of people that are working on this, and it's pretty fun. It's pretty exciting. But yeah, not not much off-the-shelf stuff here, mainly because all of it is powered by our own infrastructure. And so, for instance, one of the ways we can learn so much about what's going on is that all of the devices, apart from physical cell phones, are handled in-house. And so we have a, a technology we've built, which gives people a virtual machine or a a virtual cell phone, and then we can con- totally control that. So from the network traffic in and out, whether it's encrypted or not, through to mouse and keyboard input and what your server's doing and that kind of stuff, all of that's logged and taken into account, as long, including what the visuals are and what other stuff is coming out of the machine. At Software Engineering Daily, we need to keep our metrics reliable. If a botnet started listening to all of our episodes and we had nothing to stop it, our statistics would be corrupted. We would have no way to know whether a listen came from a bot or a real user. And that's why we use Encapsula, to stop attackers and improve performance. When a listener makes a request to play an episode of Software Engineering Daily, Encapsula checks that request before it reaches our servers, and it filters the bot traffic preventing it from ever reaching us. Botnets and DDoS attacks are not just a threat to podcasts. They can impact your application too. Encapsula can protect API servers and microservices from responding to unwanted requests. To try Encapsula for yourself, go to encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts and get a free enterprise trial of Encapsula. Encapsula's API gives you control over the security and performance of your application, and that's true whether you have a complex microservices architecture or a WordPress site, like Software Engineering Daily. Encapsula has a global network of over 30 data centers that optimize routing and cache your content. The same network of data centers are filtering your content for attackers, and they're operating as a CDN, and they're speeding up your application. They're doing all of this for you, and you can try it today for free by going to Encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts, and you can get that free enterprise trial of Encapsula. That's Encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts to check it out. Thanks again, Encapsula. So you're recording what the QA tester does yep. for a given test, like take out the podcast player, favorite yep. a podcast, close the podcast app, and then reopen it to make sure that that podcast is still favorited. Yep. How does that get translated from a manual QA tester doing that into a automated 
computer vision driven test cool so like the short the like the simplest way which was what we started on is just dumbly replaying it turns out that doesn't actually get you very far because normally things in the interface change and so we've built on top of that more and more nuance about which parts of the screen are actually important to for the automated tester to look at and which parts can be ignored and so this is basically the high level of how we do it i don't really want to get into too much detail about it because it's not not currently patented yet ah. but will be shortly and so short vision is it's like a new pretty new way of doing it so this i don't believe has been done before so we are probably going to patent it that's cool um, can you talk at all about maybe you really just don't want to get into anything until you patent it but can you talk at all about like labeling or because you know you, you this these machine learning systems you basically need to sure. give it labeled data in order to give I it mean, some framework yeah i mean this is actually one of the awesome things about yeah i can get okay. into this a little so like short version is like i see a lot of uh machine learning or AI first startups uh, popping up all over the place doing random things and like the question that I always have is like where do you get your training data from and the the real question is like they either don't or they have to buy it or they have to figure it out later and so that's a problem and whereas Rainforest we've been automation second so we have a, a totally saleable usable product that all our customers love that doesn't do any of this AI ML stuff, at least until the last year, and it's only behind the scenes now. And so what we do is we store all of that data, and then we have a second layer of work that we can get testers to do, which helps us label the data that we have. And so every time our research team wants more labeling of data, we can just insert extra work for these, uh, these people to do, and they help us label their own data. And so we already have a really good feedback loop. And Actually, this is a kind of good segue for anyone that's going to AWS reInvent. I'm actually doing a talk about this, this particular point that you've just brought up, Jeff, is a common one. It's like, how do you get enough training data and how do you keep it fresh? So over like a year or two of a model existing, do you really think you don't need more training data? Do you not keep that fresh or uh, update it? And short version is it's actually really difficult to do at scale unless you have well, some nice way of doing it or a team of people to do it. And so we do it with our own in-house uh, MTurk equivalent, but it's as in we don't use MTurk directly, but we use their workers. Oh. And so a short version is that. So there's a talk that I'm doing on, actually it's a two and a half hour workshop at reInvent if any of your listeners want to come along. Wait, so uh, you, you, should don't, be able- you don't use Turk at all anymore? No, so it's actually kind of complicated, but I can explain you high level is we're actually powered by Mechanical Turk and Crowdflare behind the scenes. And uh, what we do is we actually don't use any of their, we use their platform for a couple of things. One is for finding workers and the other is for paying workers. We don't actually use their either algorithms or the way they list work. We generally give work directly to the, the people themselves, so via Chrome extension. It's actually open source if anyone cares or wants to have a quick look. But So the short version why is because we want low latency and high throughput, um, which means we want to be able to manage who gets what when. And so that's actually really difficult to do with MTurk or Crowdflower directly. And so we actually came up with some ways of doing it on top of them, but eh, this is still a little better. And so the cool thing is they still get the, the commission and they still get paid for us doing this on top of them and they actually get less load and we get slightly more control so it's kind of a next level way of using it as far as i'm aware not many people are doing it i talked about uh if anyone wants to look up i talked last year at reinvent about how we the evolution of like how we dealt with mechanical turk at, at um at reinvent and so i didn't actually go this far because the organizers thought it was just too too abstract a concept to to understand but i actually went pretty far in the detail of like how you'd start out which is just dumbly putting work onto their queue and then the other one is how you decouple the work from the work you put on their queue with the actual work you want done on your system and then the next level and the next level and then like i didn't go as far as where we are today but do they yeah. have well developed apis on crowdflower and yeah, like yeah. crowdflower for, for people who don't know crowdflower is a layer on or at least last time i checked was a layer on top of mechanical turk that adds usability yeah it's kind of so that's not quite true crowdflower uh, so mturk has really good apis 
some of them, there's actually a lot of APIs, so it's actually quite difficult to get your head around. So if anyone wants to start out, you should definitely start out using their wizards. But if you don't want to, what I'm trying to say, if you want to read their docs, like they're, they're pretty in-depth, to be honest, as in there's a lot of APIs and a lot of nuance cool. to it. Crowdflower, their APIs are actually really good. So it's it's a little simpler. Um, they're not quite what you described. They used to do stuff with Mechanical Turk, but they haven't for... I would say three plus years, maybe it's four now. But uh, high level, the way I like to think of Crowdflower is there, it's actually a really cool idea. They're an aggregator of other smaller sources of work, uh, labor even. And so they have their own pool of uh, labor. I think it's called Crowdflower Elite, which are like the best people that they've pulled into their own crowd. Um, mm. And then they also aggregate from many other services. So like click workers like, uh, I can't remember too many of them but they basically b- provide a common API for these people and they manage the payments back out to these services does Turk care about that do they care if if you go on to mechanical Turk and then say hey come over to our platform so what do you mean for our use case the answer is no and the reason well, for your why... use case you 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 pay them I mean you, yeah, you yeah. That's, that's, so that's why they don't care because we pay we pay them we've asked them we told them what we we're doing as long as they get the percentage fee then they're fine and so and that's fine with us as well Crowdflower has like a lot of workers on their platform and you can get them very fast and they're like reasonably to very good which is is great so for those who don't know. I should have ta- I should have mentioned this beforehand, but this mechanical Turk slash Crowdflower stuff is essentially if you want a task done, like taking a survey or doing a manual test, you have an API for assigning humans to do that simple task. It's an API for labor. There's also the scale API. We did a show about the yeah, scale yeah. API. You must have heard about that. No, I know those guys. So, like, have the you- interesting thing with most of these are what am I trying to say? So, like. Uh, Mechanical Turk started out as like, I think it even still is. It's just a very general horizontal platform. And they have some uh, use cases that you can do that are like built in as a wizard for. Problem is, it's like pretty nuanced to get really good results out of a system like that. So what you've seen or what I've noticed over the last few years is that things like uh, Scale API, they've come along and they're not a general platform. They're like a, a verticalized platform. So... Um, so, for instance, Scale, if I remember rightly, they'll do a couple of things. They'll do phone calls. They'll do identifying things in images. Like, there's four things they do. And presumably, they do each of those very well. Um, yeah. But they don't do just, like, general stuff. So, MTurk is really cool. In a way, it's, like, super powerful. But it's also, with power becomes uh, responsibility and also, like like difficulty if that makes sense so you can literally ask them to do anything you can ask them to like draw a picture of a cat and upload it but you might get a lot of cats that you didn't want or you can ask them to like transcribe a receipt from an image or you can ask them to phone up a business like you can pretty much do whatever you want but the quality control aspect is one of the the more nuanced side is how do you get the results you actually want And so at small scale, you can actually review them yourself or manually or hire someone to do it. But once you get to a larger scale, it becomes really difficult to do well. And that's when the problems come. And we're at the kind of scale for the last years that, like, no way we can do it. Like, in fact, we've never really done manual reviews except maybe the first year we were alive. And so we're like five or so years old now. And for many of these problems that I've talked to people about, you send every single task to three people, and then you just hope that two out of three people vote consistently to, <laughs> to create yeah, the I mean, correct that's, answer. That's the, most, that's the sort of most naive way of doing it. And we, we, do, we send to like two to three people, depending on the people. And so the cool thing about running a, a platform like this for so long is that we actually know, we have a lot of data about the workers and what they are good or bad at doing, or how fast they are or uh, how long they've been working and things like that go into scores that we have behind the scenes to work out how many people we need to be confident about this result. And so the kind of interesting thing is unlike, for instance, transcribing a receipt, there is when you're testing software, there's actually not necessarily one right answer. So, for instance, if I'm going through your website and saying, hey, does the uh, upload a podcast thing work? Like, it might do for two testers, and normally you'd just be like, cool, it worked. 
But if the third tester said, hey, this didn't work, there was a, like a 500 error, like, do you, for us, we want to expose that to our customers. We want to say, hey, two testers, it worked, but we really trust this person and it looks like they really had a 500. So you probably want to have a look at that. So like the, what I'm trying to say is it's like less deterministic than just transcribe the same receipt three times because you have different states happening even when you're not intending that, if that makes sense. And so the the point, some of the magic behind Rainforest is basically making sure that you see the right results at the right time. And that's actually been pretty hard to get right, but it's been well worth it now. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, uh, kind of. I mean, the, the previous example was one, it's like, hey, it works well for two people and then suddenly your server restarts halfway through or suddenly that extra character they put in didn't work. Oh, um, okay. You still want to see that and you don't want that hidden even though the other two testers said it. So, like, we take into account what actually happened during the test as well as the result from the tester. And so, oh, so you it's give, like, like the logs, for example. Yeah, like we we get the HTTP logs. We know what they've posted. We know how long each request took. We know where they've clicked. We know what stuff has been shown on the page. We know what was in the JavaScript concept. Do they have consistent devices? Yeah, so that's another interesting topic to go on. There's um, a few people, like companies in the industry, that, I don't know, seem to be pushing this concept of uh, using the tester's own devices. And so, like, the short version with that is it gives a problem of, like, unrepeatability. And so you end up with more more bugs and more issues, and some of them may or may not be real. But the short version is you, if you can't repeat a bug, if you can't give that to your engineers and go, like, hey, here's how you get back to this state so you can actually fix it, it causes more trouble than it's worth. And so one of our beliefs is having all the testers have devices that are in a consistent state. And so we're super careful about that. And so for our, anything that's virtualized, it's like a freshly booted, clean state VM that's the same repeatedly. And so what happens is if a tester finds a bug, A, you can uh, look through the logs and see exactly what happened. You can watch a video and see what happened. You get the notes from a tester, but also you can just ask for that VM back and you can start running through the test yourself using the same exact settings whether it's a custom one for you with like random plugins and stuff installed or it's just one of our off-the-shelf ones either way it's um like the same state as your tester would have had which for me is super important for repeatability you mentioned you have like sixty thousand people who are doing these tests yeah how do you manage that army of people so i think i i mentioned this briefly before but it's all managed by software and so everything from like working out that we need to get more people onto onto the system and train them through to training them and checking that they're doing the right thing through to giving them their first work with the actual real customer normally with like higher ranked testers as the two other people through to uh, like disciplining them if they're doing bad work or slow work through to either promoting them or uh, firing them or paying them all of that's done with software and kind of interesting things that we've heard from our testers are especially how do i put this like we've had uh, people from minorities and or uh, women come to us and say hey like it's kind of weird that you're like extremely fair and we're like yeah it's managed by software it doesn't nobody cares like mm. what race or gender you are it's going to treat you exactly equally regardless of that and so they're used to Oh, apparently they're used to other requesters which is the internal well the industry jargon for people like us basically treating them differently based on what their profile picture looks like or what their name looks like which i i'm like super glad that we don't do this and it's because we manage it by software does that make sense it does make sense yeah what's a day in the life of these turks on on rainforest have you interviewed many of them or talked to them what do you what's your understanding yeah. of their data no, we have and it, it's all over the place so like uh, there's actually some i think there's a recent blog post like in the last two weeks from one of our super testers which is basically the highest ranked testers that we we have and so if you're curious you can go on uh, rainforestqa.com slash blog and just scroll down the page you should be able to find it but short fishing they're all over the place so we have a lot of them out of eastern europe a lot of them out of the philippines some south americans and then uh, some in india and then there's actually like a long tail of people all over the place but yeah age wise we did a, a diversity in like age 
type survey somewhat recently and it's actually way more like age diverse than I would have expected and so yeah short version they range from like parents that are working from home with their kids through to students that are uh, just wanting extra money and being able to work ad hoc so the the cool thing about rainforest kind of like uber or lyft or any of these uh, gig economy job providers are when you want to work for us uh, you just turn on the chrome extension when you want to stop working you just turn it off and we'll stop sending you work the other nice thing is uh, we pay you almost instantly and so within a few minutes after you finishing your work we'll have sent you a small payment for uh, like whatever amount of work you did uh, direct your account on either Amazon or uh, via Crowdflower. And so I guess that's the other thing to mention is like the usual standard of payment in this industry as in MTurk Crowdflower is because it's man the results are sometimes reviewed by humans, you can take a long time to get the payment. And so maybe it takes them a few days or maybe it takes them 20 days to like go through and review and release your payment. And so like us paying algorithmically and like uh, almost instantly after you're done the work is like a really positive thing as far as we hear from our testers. Do you have a product that is sold to software engineers? Are you looking to hire software engineers? Become a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily and support the show while getting your company into the ears of 24,000 developers around the world. Developers listen to Software Engineering Daily to find out about the latest strategies and tools for building software. Send me an email to find out more. Jeff at SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com The sponsors of Software Engineering Daily make this show possible. And I have enjoyed advertising for some of the brands that I personally love using in my software projects. If you're curious about becoming a sponsor, send me an email. Or email your marketing director and tell them that they should send me an email. Jeff at SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com Thanks as always for listening and supporting the show. And let's get on with the show. multiple tiers of difficulty for tests that you reward people more uh, like once you become a premier tester you get the more challenging testing tasks which also pay better sort of it's um actually slightly different it's the amount of work you get the amount of opportunity you get is directly based on how good you are so it's more a volume thing. And then there, once you get really far up the ranks, there are other types of work that you can get that just aren't open to the newer or less experienced testers. So once you start getting more trust, you get eligible for, for instance, the platform that I was talking about where we review and label data internally. Mm-hmm. And so that's not that's just not available to the lower, lower rank testers. There's also some jobs that we do where testers review other testers' work. And so that's also not available to the, the newer testers. And then like the ultimate one is if you become a super tester, then there's a whole different track of work that's available to you for doing, depending on your experience, doing like exploratory testing or some uh, rewriting of stuff as well. And that's uh, handled totally outside of, well, it's handled like through the same system, but it's like a totally different stream of work, if that makes sense. Tell me so, about yeah, something. I mean, oh, I was ahead. just going to say, I think there was another talk that I did but on MTurk specifically, but the, the short version is like, these are people and uh, they want to do well and they want to progress and like feel like they're part of something. And so I really believe in giving giving them the opportunity to improve and also like explaining to them clearly what's happened if they've done something that we didn't want. And so like, does that make sense? Just like if you hired uh, an employee, you'd want them to feel part of a team and also like have some way of progressing. And so we've been pretty careful to try and uh, have that, like make it pretty clear. So. Of course. I think that's one of the things that separates a, look, I love Lyft and Uber, but there's not a whole lot of upward mobility on those platforms. I think that can be an uninspiring trajectory for for somebody i think people like to see upward mobility in the domain where they are doing a lot of work i mean i guess there's you know you can make more on quotas and whatnot but there's you can't really advance right sure 
Like you can't can't get yeah. to a place where you can... as as far as I'm aware, no, you can't. I've never done, I've never driven Uber or Lyft myself, so I actually don't know. I presume yeah. you're right. Like, what what would there possibly be? Could maybe be wrong. You can, yeah. maybe you can upgrade to like Uber XL or Uber X. Uh, sorry, Uber Black. Actually, don't know if that is that an upgrade. It no. must be. A, no, I don't think so. I think you just need a black car. But I mean, oh, in, really? in contrast, like you take something like Fiverr. I think people have very positive emotions towards Fiverr, uni- yeah. like almost universally. And Fiverr is something where you can, you know, you can chart your own course. So I don't know. No, I I, I believe, and so we're like maybe a more less freeform version of Fiverr, if that makes sense. As in, there is yeah. a track you can follow, but with Fiverr, actually, kind of like Fiverr, um, as in, you can go on and offer whatever service you want, and then get your reputation and build it and it seems like a really cool platform i love it i've i just actually just did a show with the cto of fiverr and i think that company's awesome i yeah, just really no, love it i love it i use it once in a while like if i want to get a like video done for my friend's birthday or something like i'm like oh five bucks to have this guy sing like, <laughs> yeah. customized awesome song to someone like just send it to them and they're like yay right anyway that's see that's what's cool about it is it's like a place yeah. for online collaboration like paid yeah. online collaboration anyway let's let's get back to uh, to rainforest so so uh, you know you're describing the platform as it is today which is awesome and it, and the wheels are greased things are going well i'm sure it was not always the case i would love to know what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in the early days when you were figuring out exactly what this platform was going to be and how to solve those difficult issues? Sure. I mean, some of the high-level ones, and pick whichever ones you want to dive into, were like, originally we had wanted this to be like more self-serve, so customers could just go on and make their own account and uh, start using it themselves. And that turns out to have a whole bunch of problems, at least for us. And then the other ones are like getting results quality right, also getting like there's some fraud problems occasionally. I'm not sure I really want to dive into that in super big detail, but short version is really hard to get right. Um, and once you do, it seems to go away. And then also just the technology behind the scenes is actually pretty in depth. So at some point when we started, we didn't have virtual machines. We were using our testers' own browsers or own devices. And uh, as I said before, like <laughs> we believe in repeatability and that was causing us problems of like, repeatability not being a thing and like not being able to give consistent results because you can't necessarily get the same tester back to do the test again so like i don't know like that was there was a lot of there's a lot of work behind the scenes if you've ever used rainforest which i guess most people listening haven't it's a giant iceberg of a product like the front end is actually really nice and clean and simple we just launched a new version of it like in the last month or so but it looks like pretty simple and then if you look at all the stuff behind the scenes it's not insane but it's like a crazy big set of stuff um, that's taken us years to get like perfected and so i don't know i we were doing an engineering all hands meeting like last week because we have a remote engineering team and so they come in once a quarter and uh one of the back-end team leads was like yo we have like 60 production services powering this and i'm like mm. oh like I didn't realize I realized it was quite a lot, but I hadn't remembered it was that high, and so that's just stuff that we actually actively run, which for us, for me, seems like quite a lot. Tell me and about the infrastructure. Is it, it? Are you on Kubernetes? Is it no, containerized? You on AWS? No, I mean, so it's containerized, but it is not on Kubernetes. So like, we um, I actually wrote an interesting article on Infoworld about this recently, but we are on Heroku. And so I love I'm a Heroku. pretty big. Yeah, I love me, Heroku so much. I do too. So like, I'm a massive fan of um, of Heroku. As long as um, you've got margins. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think that's the. You're sort of right, but you're also wrong. And the the problem is, like, this is the common argument against Heroku is that, yo, it's expensive. But problem is, you never take into account the the human time behind the scenes to actually set up like Kubernetes or like ECS or keep it running. And it's always like one or two engineer. If you're smart, it's like two plus engineers doing that um, in case one gets sick. And like short version engineers are insanely expensive here or basically anywhere. And especially like ones that are good. And the other thing that kind of annoys me is that people assume that they're going to get the most competent person to set up their shiny new Kubernetes cluster. And it's like, 
I don't think you actually are. And so, like, anyway, the short version is Heroku looks cheap when you look at the total cost of any of these other platforms, at least for me and at least for what we're doing. So, I don't know, we spend probably somewhere between 15 and 20k a month on Heroku. And just to hire, like, two ops people, if we hire them in San Francisco, I don't know, what are you, what are you saying, like, 120? <laughs> yeah, you break even. Plus loading, plus loading, plus running AWS, plus the fact you've got to get it right. It's like, now nah, that's like three, four hundred K plus the AWS bill. So like, it's insanely good value to use a, uh, Heroku. That's actually really interesting to hear that it's only 15 to 20 K per month when you're at the scale of, uh, of yeah, Rainforest. So like, that is just so we have two halves of our infrastructure. So we have the all the stuff that runs in Heroku, which is probably like out of those services that I listed, it's probably eighty percent of them. Uh-huh. And then for the virtual machine cluster, we actually run on bare metal, <laughs> so we're like both ends of the uh, the spectrum of people calling you insane. So we're like on Heroku, and then we're on like rented bare metal, like colo, well not not colocated, like dedicated service we rent from a German hosting provider. We're probably going to expand out of there into a second second provider as well, just for redundancy, even though they have like three or four data centers. We just want to move to another one as well. But you, I mean, question is, Germany, rent, yes. is, is that because it's, is it, is it close enough to Eastern Europe so and that's where the preponderance? Yeah, so good, cool. It's actually a couple of reasons. A, it's like very cheap and very good quality for the price. But the other thing is it's nicely located for our testers. So it's like low latency. And so it actually works out really well. And so the way we have that part of the system set up is like if one of these boxes die, which they do, it doesn't matter. It just gets pulled out of the cluster and then the work gets reassigned to another tester on another machine or the same tester on another like physical server. And so really the cool thing there is that it's built to be, it's built to cope with like unreliable hardware or like semi-reliable hardware compared to like if we're buying like giant expensive like HP boxes, if that makes sense. Why can't you just give them AWS virtual machines? Is it cheaper? Well, a couple of reasons. The the price is insane on AWS. Oh, um, okay. like, we're talking like for 100 euros a month, we can rent like eight core Xeon with 128 gigs of like ECC and like SSDs for like 100 euros a month, 110 euros a month okay. with bandwidth. And so you look at AWS cost, that's like, uh, last I looked at seven plus hundred bucks plus all the storage and bandwidth. Okay, um, so a seventh of the cost. Yeah, a seventh of the cost. And so the obvious, there are some obvious trade-offs, right? And so one of them is the time it takes to get a machine is in the sort of hours range rather wow. than the sort of seconds range. The other thing is, well, they have less locations than AWS, but the interesting one is actually the performance is better for most of the use cases that we're doing. And because we're doing a lot of virtualization, virtualizing yeah. inside uh, already virtualized thing, it, at least when we were last doing it, it was dog slow. And so when you're doing that at scale, it just doesn't work super well. I mean, I'm kind of tempted by, I think it was Rackspace, and there's a couple of other providers now that are doing basically bare metal cloud and so what they'll do is presumably they spin up the machine and boot it with whatever you want using a, a network controller. And then you basically get a clean state hardware with no uh, no virtualization on it at all. So that would give us the performance we want. But the other thing is the cost is just nuts at the scale we're at. If we, we're renting things for like 100 euros a month kind of thing and we're renting like hundreds and hundreds of them. And we moved to AWS, even if it was faster, it would just be like crazy. How And how bursty is your workload? Well, so that's the thing. We just generally run a massive overcapacity. And so, and we also run everything all the, how do I say this? So the cluster is con- constantly have stuff ready to go and idle when it's in a neutral state. And then say you start a giant run or like all the customers start a giant run that's for one specific type of uh, browser, what we'll do is uh, shift the cluster to start running that kind of browser for you. But it's relatively fast to do that, but we normally have a, a massive spare capacity of any one particular device. And so, yeah, that's the trade-off is that we have a fixed capacity, a total fixed capacity, if that makes sense. But right. whatever those slots need to be used for, they can be changed to that. But by default, they're, they're sat there with a predicted 
workload waiting to go, if that makes sense. So we know at any one time, like, hey, we're likely to have like 40% of our workload is going to be Chrome. And then like 20% is going to be like Firefox or another 10% is going to be Android 6 or 8 or whatever is the latest, shiniest one. But And so like we just predict that. And if it changes, we'll rebalance the cluster. So yeah, it works really well. Oh, I see. So, so, so you always you always have yeah. enough workers that are logged in. It's what it's the workers, but it's also the the machines they'll be using waiting. Let me see if I understand this correctly. So you you have uh, enough people mm-hmm. who are always logged in. They're just logged in they, through the Chrome extension. They're waiting to receive. To, so and the Chrome extension is lets them see through their browser on. Their no. actual machine. No. Okay, so like, let's machine? just dial it back. So what happens? You're just a tester sitting there, like watching, like waiting for some work. Yeah. If you well, just doing something, if you want to start doing work, you t- you press the Chrome extension. It turns from like gray to green, and then if there's some work on your browser, on, my browser, on whatever on my thing you're doing, as long as it's Chrome, don't care. You turn it on. We'll push work to you if there's work. It'll open a new tab and refocus to that tab. And then within like a second or so, the whole interface will load and it'll have a virtual machine connected over uh, basically VNC over HTTPS. And then you'll also get the instructions for what to start doing testing-wise. And so you literally follow the instructions and tell us whether it worked or didn't. If it didn't, you give us a description, highlight some stuff on the page, and then um, you carry on. And then you submit the job and you get paid. And so, like, literally, the the tester right. just has to be able to use Chrome, be able to read English, and be, like, competent with a computer. They don't really have to have any particular device. They don't really have to have anything else apart from a computer and a mouse and a keyboard. Yeah. Because it'll virtualize the Android device or the iOS device, if that's what you yeah, need. So, yeah, and even if it's a real physical device, so... Uh, we do quite a lot of stuff with Amazon Device Farm. And so we originally made some technology uh, that let us take over control of a, a phone remotely and then pipe it back into the, this infrastructure. And now we're, we're shifting to, like, we told them about that. And I think they, they found it cool. I don't know if it's already on their roadmap, but short version, they've released something called RA, which is remote access for Amazon Device Farm. And so that lets us, well, we've built some stuff in the middle to let us tunnel that into our infrastructure. And so what that means is instead of getting like a Chrome browser, you just get an iPhone 7 or an iPhone 8, like straight in your browser. And so, and that works the exact same way as all the other stuff. So we record the video, we record what's going on. That, And so the tester's experience is exactly the same. They just follow the instructions. They don't really care what the device is. I guess there are some nuance for scrolling that we t- we pre-teach them in, in training. But basically, it's like pretty easy for them to, to start doing work for us, which is pretty cool. Okay, and so on the server side of things, you've got this German cluster of dedicated hardware that spins up the virtual machines that are being yep. VNC'd to those rainforest testers and the reason you have it in germany is because most of them most of those testers are in eastern europe yeah and and so what i don't understand is how you get the burstiness right because if you need those testers to be a the the testers have to be awake at the right time you have to have the people that are kicking off the continuous delivery pipelines at the right time sure so, like, it's we have testers outside of Eastern Europe. We okay. have, uh, like, about a third of them are probably there. And then okay. there's okay. Philippines and India. But either way, Germany is roughly the center point for the testers we have. And is the, like the latency is just a little bit worse for those other people? Yeah, it's a little bit worse for them. But it, eventually, that's what I was talking about before, is eventually we'll have a second, um, second or third uh, provider and we'll have them closer to we'll have the center point between three if that makes sense because vnc uh, is so bandwidth intensive right yeah so it's not actually vnc i just okay. use that or whatever for- it is yeah as we begin to wrap up you you know you've been running this company for five years six years something like that yeah it's been long yeah 2012 2012 right so that's that's a pretty reasonable amount of time and you've scaled to a reasonable size what are some lessons that you've learned about engineering management? Yeah, it's interesting. I've learned that I probably should have hired a VPN earlier. So the other thing is I've learned so much actually over... So short version is 
I don't manage the engine team directly anymore. We have a VPN who actually just got promoted, but short version is he runs the engine team day to day for the last year. And it's been amazing seeing what a professional manager is uh, like at <laughs> managing an engine team. And so, like, I don't think I did a super horrible job when I was doing it for the first, uh, like, four or so years of the company. Like, I hired a great team. Almost no one has left slash been fired even since the VPN Derek has joined. He's reorganized some stuff, which I actually really like. And it's just super interesting seeing the things that he does differently and, and better than I used to do. And so I think I learned like a, a load of stuff in the first four years, like how to hire people effectively, how to uh, get good work out of people. But the things that I've seen and learned since he's joined are like, oh, like long-term motivation of what they're doing and like career paths and like how to teach them to be good managers is like stuff that I've just not done myself before. So watching him do that has been a great lesson. So like if I was to do this again, I would want to look for someone like him or if we were smaller, it would be pretty hard to get someone like him, to be honest, but a smaller, like get somebody more experienced or maybe I'd be better at doing it next time around. But yeah, so like short version is I've learned a load just from watching him. I think I learned a lot in the first like four years anyway, but like hiring and retaining people was probably the, the biggest one. So Fred and uh, my co-founder Fred and I are basically first time at this. So it's the first time I've built an engineering team. It's the first time I've led an engineering team. It's the first time I've got a VPN. And yeah, I guess like uh, for me, the one of the biggest learnings is at least early on was like you don't have to do it all yourself. And it's actually dumb if you try and do it all yourself. You need to start delegating things down. And then after that, it was like how to keep people motivated and how to learn when you should put another layer of management in place and just a lot of stuff uh, because I was a first time first time manager of engineers if that makes sense so all right final question so uh, I read this blog post I think it was by Andre Karpathy the deep learning guy or some somebody else one of those deep learning folks and it was this fictional blog post about a future that is in the not too distant future where Many of the knowledge workers are doing Turk-like tasks, but the Turk-like tasks are increasingly complicated, and knowledge work becomes sort of on-demand economy work. Do you think we're going to see this convergence of the knowledge work economy and the mechanical work economy? I actually do. So... (laughs) Well, one of the things, yeah, I actually do. I'm not sure how much detail I want to go into on that because it's kind of dystopian <laughs> as f***. But yeah, short version is I do. And I'd also love to read that article because I did not see that one. So if yeah. you wouldn't mind sending it to me, uh, that's not really a sure. useful, useful answer for you. But yeah, I don't really... I'll put it in the show notes too yeah. for the listeners. Cool, cool, cool. So yeah, I don't really want to dive into that because it, it feels kind of dystopian. So Really? Because I mean, to some degree, I think look it's... At it. uh, I think of it as utopian. I mean, it's like... Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just well, a pessimistic this, yeah. English guy, but could be, so... Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, you don't, you don't even want to give the utopian spin, I guess. No, I mean, I don't... I haven't thought of... Tell me the okay. utopian spin. I, well, the utopian spin is you log on whenever you... I mean, look, the aspects that people love about Rainforest QA, no. right? I mean, you log on whenever you want to. You do work whenever you want to. There's a somewhat democratic process you know that you know is somewhat objective something mm. asymptoting towards objective you know the downside is of course an objective completely numerically driven society is not necessarily one that would have yeah like welfare you know and and yeah it's like a, yeah. you know i think it's anyway no. yeah it's just probably too long for too long of a topic to cover in three minutes so i'll let your i'll let your calendar be satisfied and we can oh, cool. we can end it end it here okay this was super fun by the way so yeah thanks for for putting this on and thanks to your listeners for listening to us rant for an hour about <laughs> yeah. random stuff so hopefully it was definitely useful for you but it was very useful we should we should definitely do it do it again in the future when we have a another topic to, to cover simplify continuous delivery with go cd the on-premise open source continuous delivery tool by thoughtworks With GoCD, you can easily model complex deployment workflows using pipelines and visualize them end-to-end with the value stream map. 
you get complete visibility into and control over your company's deployments. At gocd.org slash sedaily, find out how to bring continuous delivery to your teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. Visit gocd.org slash sedaily to learn more about GoCD. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. Thanks to GoCD for being a continued sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Wow! 